Okay, uh, this part is actually most interesting to me as we're going to talk about the future. Oh, I want to mention one more thing about debt. There have been articles recently of churches going into foreclosure on their property. And businesses, governments, individuals, families, and churches need to be extraordinarily cautious when it comes to debt. And many churches are just as aggressive as GM and the federal government when it comes to, and they'll call it faith. You know, it's, it's not faith to be foolish and get into a ton of debt. It's presumption. It's testing God, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not, you know, not going to debate whether any debt whatsoever is allowed, but presumptuous debt that you may not be able to pay is a very bad testimony. It's a bad testimony to have headlines in the paper of churches defaulting on multi-million dollar debts they incurred. Isn't that shameful? Um, so preparing for the future. Uh, back to money myths. We don't have all those printed out yet, but they're in your notes. Some would say, well, I don't need to make a will because I don't have much money to leave to my family. Why do you still need a will? Got kids? Who do you want to take care of the kids? Do you want a judge to decide who takes care of your kids? Uh, I don't need health, disability, or life insurance because I just trust God to take care of me. <laughs> yeah. Pam, who is legally blind, would tell you that doesn't always... You know, God in His providence sometimes allows calamity. And uh, there's wisdom. You say, well, I don't need a job because I trust God to take care of me. That is foolish too. It's better to buy insurance, which is an investment with cash value, rather than just paying for term insurance. Some may dispute me whether that's a myth or not, but I'll try to make an argument in a moment. It's smart to buy extended warranties on electronic products in case they break. Uh, when you buy a warranty on your phone or your DVD player, most of all that money is profit to the person who sold it to you and commission to the salesman. Um, the best insurance has little or no copay or deductible. What's the matter with that? That insurance costs a whole lot more. That The policy with the $1,000 deductible might cost $200 a month. The policy with the $50 deductible might cost twice as much per month or more. I don't need to save money for retirement because I will be receiving Social Security. Uh, that was a laugh line deliberately put into my notes. You cannot live on Social Security, and the money they give you may not be worth much. I don't, plan, I don't need to save for retirement because I plan to work until the day I die. Yeah, the disabled man on the second row after the blind lady that you may be disabled. It may be one day you won't be able to work and you still want to live. And so you, you plan for that strong possibility. Professional financial advisors can be trusted to give me sound advice, especially if they are friends. That's another laugh line, I'm afraid, but I'll explain. Okay, so first, insurance. This section, more than any other, probably is going to me give... I'm going to try to give you opinions which I think reflect biblical wisdom. But there may be people here who differ on the particulars. I'm not offended if you differ. You're welcome to differ. Maybe you'll ask questions and you express your differences. I'm going to give you opinions. I have reason for thinking so. But I'm not saying mine is the only way. In general, the purpose of all kinds of insurance is so that if there a calamity takes place... You can meet your obligations. A calamity means you need a heart transplant, your house burns down, a kid on a bike pulls in front of your car and you run them over and the parents are suing you for millions of dollars. 
There are very risky things that can happen. And part of planning is realizing those possibilities. And insurance is a means of being sure you can meet those obligations should that day come. The prudent man sees the evil and hides himself. The naive go on and are, and are punished for it. Even thinking of life insurance. You know, I remember especially when my kids were small, and I'm thinking, you know, if I'm out running and a truck knocks me down and kills me, how's my wife going to finish raising our kids? And for me, life insurance was a means by which I could fulfill 1 Timothy 5.8 and make sure that my wife wouldn't have financial worries if I dropped dead. So insurance is a means, and, and particularly what insurance is doing is it's, it's spreading risk among multiple policyholders. You know, for a 30-year-old man, the likelihood, if he's in good health, of dying is one in tens of thousands or something like that. And so the tens of thousands of men all pay a few hundred dollars a year, and then the one who dies gets it. That's essentially how it works. You're spreading risk. Same thing with health insurance. Unlikely you'll need the heart transplant. So you're paying. The insurance company is using statistics and actuarial pools, and they're charging you what it's going to cost to pay off the claims which should be rare. And in the unlikely event catastrophe happens to one policyholder, the premiums of the other policyholders uh, pay for it. You know, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. You know, it, it's a fortress. The proper talk about the money is a protection from evil. And so insurance is a means by which you can do that. Now, if you say you don't want to have insurance, I can't again. I'm not going to bring it before the elders of your church and say you're sinning. I will tell you, I think you're being very unwise. And you're subjecting your family to unnecessary calamity. I'm going to give you a verse in a moment. Well, there it is. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. I would like for my wife not to be in that position if I die. That's what insurance, that's what life insurance is for. Got it? Same thing is true if, if liability insurance, car insurance, health insurance, you don't want to be in a place where your house is taken away, your savings is taken away, a disability where you can't work anymore and can't provide for your family. It's a means to do that. Now, insurance companies are not running charities. I had a call from somebody who said, well, we don't have medical insurance. My wife is pregnant and I want to buy medical insurance. You know, the insurance company has to collect enough money to pay for the $8,000 this pregnancy is going to cost. And they can calculate among all women 28 years old that one in eight will get pregnant this year, and therefore we spread the money around to the others. But to say, okay, I need a heart transplant. I've got cancer. Please, somebody give me insurance. You've already identified yourself as that one in 10,000 is going to need it, and they can't you know, it, they're going to have to charge a ton of money. The, the money they don't create money. They're not the government. They, uh, you know, and just the same thing. If, if you find out you've got AIDS, cancer, and heart disease, and, and you're 40 years old and you want to buy a million dollar policy on your life, nobody's going to sell it to you. The time to buy the insurance is when you're healthy. So if you are the one in a million that it happens to, you're ready. So insurance companies spread risk. If you are extremely high risk, that's the advantage of getting insurance while you're healthy. Because then you've got it for when something bad happens. By the time something bad happens, it's a disaster. Again, one political comment. That's why one of the big problems with some of the healthcare stuff going on in the media. If you can jump in when you're sick and jump out when you're not sick, just it'll be a financial catastrophe. 
So health insurance is guarding against catastrophic medical expenses. Half of bankruptcies are at least partially due to people who have health bills they cannot pay. And uh, you know, what you want, it's, a means of, it's part of providing for your family. If your child has some rare disease, you want to be able to afford to get him the treatment that he needs so he's not going to be disabled for life. And insurance is a means of having the ability to do that, and the cost is very small compared to the calamity of not being able to pay. And, again, political statement, many people who are uninsured have iPhones, unlimited cell plans, cable TV, and nice cars. <laughs> and they're choosing not to prepare for potential disaster or hoping others will pay for them, like the sluggard who doesn't plow in autumn and then begs when harvest comes. And it's not that they can't afford, but they're just choosing to take the risk, or in some cases they want others to take the risk for them, and I think that's wrong. Likewise, life insurance is like this widow lady in Second Kings 4. Elisha may not come along with oil to fill your vats. Uh, and so it's, it's a means of replacing your income if you die. Uh, general rule used to be ten times your present income. In light of present investment return, returns, that may be low right now. Um, again, I'm going to give you particular advice. My advice regarding life insurance would be to buy level premium term insurance. So if you're 40 years old and you're concerned about your wife and your kids... Uh, you can probably get a half million dollars of insurance for less than $400 a year, and the money and the, that will not go up for 20 years. After 20 years, it will go way up or you have to requalify. But in my mind, that's the cheapest way to buy life insurance. That's my opinion. You can pay three or four times that and get cash value life insurance, where it works like a savings account and people are rolling their eyes. Some people believe in that. My opinion would be, if you've got extra money, save it in your 401k or IRA. The problem with the money you're spending on the life insurance is a lot of it's going to the agent and not working for you, and it's hard to afford. You can afford the term insurance. Almost anybody could choose to pay $400 a year to, to insure against the disaster and then invest if you can later. That's my opinion, that uh, even at my advanced age, for less than $500, I can have a half million dollars of insurance so long as I'm healthy, reason to have the insurance and to have it guaranteed for several years out is if something bad happens, you've still got the insurance. Uh, something I've even do is if you're 15 years into 20 years and you're healthy, requalify and tack on another 20 years before something bad happens. Um, there was actually a guy. <laughs> uh, the, the worst radio in all the world is Christian radio on Saturdays. <laughs> It's either alternative medicine or wacky investments. There was a guy on the Christian radio station not long ago who said, God told me to sell universal life. No, he didn't, <laughs> is my answer. Again, I'm not saying it's sinful to have universal life. To sell universal life is where you're paying. Instead of just paying $400 for the term, you're paying thousands of dollars, and it's an investment plus it's the insurance. I'm just saying, I'm not going to tell you God told me to tell you to buy term. He can't tell you God told him to tell you to buy his product on which he makes commissions. Uh, I make no commissions. So that's one thing we'll talk about, too. Also, do you need to insure your spouse? Uh, if your spouse has an income that you need to pay your mortgage and take care of your kids, even if your spouse isn't, you know, is working part-time, or I remember thinking, well, if something happened to my wife and there's still kids to raise, I'm going to have to pay for private school, I'm going to have to pay for different things. And so 
you don't, insurance is not the lottery where you're thinking, oh boy, I'll be sorry if she's gone, but at least I'll have $200,000. Insurance, <laughs> she's up there in the balcony. Uh, and that's actually, insurance companies never want you to be worth more dead than alive. That's another principle as well. That, that they, they want you to have incentive to live, and they want the people around you to have an incentive to keep you alive. Um, but the, it's, it's simply a financial decision, is that what would my financial need be if this calamity took place? What would my wife need if something happened to me? What would I need financially? There's going to be all kinds of needs I have not, no amount of money can meet, but simply financially. Is there a financial loss or need with her being gone? Um, long-term disability insurance, I think, is also important. Uh, you're much more likely to be disabled than to die before you're 65. Uh, again, people are nodding because they're disabled and they're on disability. And Social Security provides a little bit of that, but not nearly enough to really live on well. And so uh, it, disability insurance is often more expensive than life insurance, but it's for a reason. It's to say to replace two-thirds of your income till you're on Social Security or something like that. Something to consider. Again, if I'm disabled... Sometimes it's included, by the way, in a company insurance plan with medical and other things. But if I'm disabled, my wife and I still need to eat. We still need to pay for our house. So it's, it's something worth considering. Likewise, auto insurance, homeowner's insurance, uh, it's to insure your property from irrecoverable damages. If you have a beater car that's worth $1,000, you don't need full coverage. This is going to cost you $500 a year in case somebody steals it or runs into it. And, you know, uh, that's not the point. But if you've got a $30,000 car on which you're making payments, you need the insurance because you couldn't make up that guy. Insurance is for what you couldn't pay. Some losses, none of us like losing money. None of us like a claim. You know, but Insurance, they're, they're charging you for what it's going to cost them in the long run to pay it back anyway. But for these, what, what I'm fearful of isn't getting a little scratch in my car that I want the insurance company to fix. I'm going to pay a lot for my insurance if I want them to fix every scratch. I want them to insure so that if I fall asleep and run a red light and injure somebody, that my whole family won't be wiped out financially as a result. Or if I'm injured, that I'll get the hospital care that I need. Um, General principle advice would be the way to save money on insurance is to get the highest possible deductible that you can afford. Does that make sense? I'll use the example of car insurance. Um, like, I just got my bill. Let's say it's $1,200 a year for our cars with a $500 deductible per incident. If somebody dings me and it costs $400, mm, that, I don't like that. But I can afford $400. I can't afford tens of thousands of dollars. I can afford $400. If I wanted the $100 deductible, it might cost me $1,500 or $1,800, a lot more per month. So you only insure what you can't afford. Uh, people say with their medical insurance that they wanted to pay everything. Medical insurance that pays everything is going to cost you over $1,000 a month for your family. You can afford to pay for checkups. You can afford to pay for some drugs or you can get their discount plan, things like that. What you can't afford is heart surgery. <laughs> Insure for the things you can't afford. Pay the things you can't afford. Insurance companies aren't running charities. They've got to collect your money, distribute it where it's needed, and make a profit. So you insure only against what you cannot afford. 
Uh, even on disability insurance, you can say, well, I could afford three months dis- disabled. And you can save a lot of money saying it only starts after I've been disabled three months. Um, the other thing you can do, which would be wise, is save the difference in an emergency fund. For a long time, we had health insurance with massive deductibles. You know, I think it got up to $10,000 deductible. But it saved several thousand dollars a year. So you put that money and you save it, and then when my wife has surgery or something happens, you take it out of the money you saved that you didn't give to the insurance company for the higher premiums. Um, Insurance to avoid extended warranties. If you have a $250 gadget, you don't need to pay an extra $75 in case it breaks within two years. I don't like paying the $250 to buy a new one, but I can afford that. Um, Even extended warranty. They've got to collect enough in the selling you the extended warranty to pay for all the claims they're anticipating. I don't think you need that. Credit card protection. You know, oh, we'll pay an extra $5 a month in case you lose your job. And we'll, I, and even cancer, cancer policies, dread disease policies that pay only if you get cancer. Just get medical insurance. You don't need a cancer policy. Uh, prepaid burial policies. Why not just buy life insurance? And that's part of the life insurance. If your wife gets a half million, she can spend 10000 to still have 490 left. Mortgage life insurance, same thing. A lot of these are really high priced, okay? Oh, you need to sure, well, buy that in your life insurance. You don't need a separate policy for that. Lots and lots of insurances they try to sell you. A lot of it is way, way, way overpriced and not needed. So that's insurance. May generate some more questions. Again, what's the purpose of insurance? It's not gambling. It's not to win the lottery. It's not so you never have to pay for stuff. You're going to have to pay for the stuff somehow. It's what you're insuring against is calamities. You're insuring against disaster. You're spreading your risk. So if the disaster happens, you're ready for it. And then savings. The ant prepares food in the summer and gathers a provision in the harvest. Even the ant has the wisdom to know when the harvest is over, winter is coming, and I better have some food saved or I'm in trouble. And the Proverbs extol wisdom of saving. And the one who gathers by labor increases wealth. Uh, Gradually, slowly, not get rich quick. Get rich slowly is what the book of Proverbs says. Is month after month you're saving. And that's that's the wisdom of foregoing present pleasures for future security and, and needs being met. I had a friend who was working in a tech company when they were going up really fast in the early 90s, and they were given options. And sometimes they'd cash, some of them would cash out their options and go buy a couch. And then when the options skyrocketed, the guy said, well, there's my $35,000 couch, and I'll go get in my $150,000 car, meaning if they just held on longer to their stock options instead of buying that stuff they didn't need right away. Um, both Dave Ramsey and also uh, the Howard Dayton with the Crown Ministries agree that in, in savings, the first thing you need is an emergency fund. Uh, an emergency fund is for the purpose of really avoiding the use of credit cards. <laughs> and so when the car repair comes or the medical bill comes, uh, rather than using debt, you've got that money saved up uh, to, to make the payment. 
Then start thinking about saving for major purchases. Your car is going to wear out. Everything you own in your house is going to wear out. Your clothes are going to wear out. Appliances, furniture. And it's much cheaper to pay yourself a car payment for a few years and buy the car for cash than it is to buy the car on credit and make the car payment to the bank. So you accumulate the money to save for future expenses. Somebody wrote a question, do I need a separate account for each one? Well, here's my you know, car payment account and here's this. this. I mean, you can have one savings account and keep track in your own records. 3000 of this is for the next car and 1000 is for the property tax payment that's coming. If you want to have separate accounts and it doesn't cost you more at your bank, fine. But you can also just in your own records divide the overall savings and designate some. Like our church has a savings account and a certain part is designated for missionary emergencies. And that's untouchable. We don't have a separate account for that, but it's designated within that account. It means we can't spend it. Uh, It's reserved for that purpose. Uh, Another principle is during times of prosperity, prepare for lean years. That's the Joseph principle, right? During the years of prosperity in Egypt, they saved grain. So when the skinny cow years came, they were ready. Uh, A good rule of thumb would be to have a goal of having three to six months expenses saved. For many people who lost their jobs and have gone through trouble, that would have been a great thing. Sad thing for us is that when we had our fat cow years, we were not only butchering our cows, we mortgaged our grandchildren's cows as well. And so when trouble came, people were not ready for it. Most people would last less than a month if they lost their income from their job. Saving for children's education. Again, there's scholarships, there's ROTC. But your education for your kids can be their inheritance if they get an education that enables them to provide better. And again, that could be training in a vocation as well. There are special savings accounts in which you can do that. I will warn you, however, again, the way the system works is if you save for your children's education, the colleges and the government will give you less money. They punish those who save and reward those who don't. Um, Doesn't mean you shouldn't be responsible, but that's the cost of being wise. Prepare for retirement. I don't think any of us should plan to retire from working. We should, I want to be busy. I'm physically able to do it anymore. You may be unable to work. You may not be able to keep a paying job for various reasons. Uh, Winter is coming. You don't want to be a burden on your children or your church. You don't want to rely upon the government. And so there's great wisdom to saving. And, And this is something that's going on that's really hard. I feel so much for those who are approaching retirement right now because in concrete terms, let's say somebody has spent a lifetime and they saved a million dollars. And they figured, okay, well, I can expect to get 7 or 8% on that, so I can get $70,000 to live on after tax, over $50,000 a year, I should be okay. Well, then the stock market crashes, and now their, their million is down to 700000 That's rough. It may be, you know, it was down to 500 now it's up to seven, whatever, however they invested it, but now they have less money. But what's more distressing is what can you get with your $700,000 now? Not 5%, 8%. You can't get more than 1% with safety. Anything else involves a lot of risk. And so now, you know, 1% interest on $700,000 is $7,000 a year instead of the 70 or whatever you were expecting before. 
And so, and by the, that's also what's happened to the government. The government made promises to people. The governments were supposed to save money so when their employees retired, they would have money by which they could pay the retirees the, the bonuses and I'm sorry, the, the pensions promised. Well, the government also had their money shrink way down, and now the government can't invest it at a high return, and so you have these massive deficits. The difference is that those who have the government pensions, the government has the power of taxation and printing, and there's hope that those people will be paid. But the people who have saved for their own retirement and their 401K and IRA, their balance has shrunk, but then the return they can make has even shrunk more. Uh, the government lowering interest rates has been a horrible tax on those who have saved, that they can't get a decent return on their money, the money they plan to live on. So these are really difficult times. Hard to plan for that. And ultimately, all we can do is trust God. Uh, somebody said, well, how much saving is, is too much? There's, there's no percentage in the Bible. There's no dollar amount. Sometimes they have commercials. What's your figure? What's the number you need to retire? That figure, by the way, has changed big time in the last few years. Uh, it's, it's a spiritual struggle. So how do you invest wisely? Uh, and again, I put there some general principles. Uh, savings, which you need as an emergency fund, should be kept safe and liquid. Liquid means you can get to it quickly, like in a bank account or insured money market account. It's not put at risk. Longer-term investments, like your retirement, if you're 30 years old, uh, you can invest in more risky things because you've got 40 more years to watch it go up and down. You can ride out the ups and downs of the market. Over long periods of time, stocks tend to do better than other things, but in short periods of time, they can be very volatile. Again, general principle. And this is, again, one thing you get in investing. This is one of the two things I want you to get. There's another really important one in a moment. Investment risks increase with anticipated return. Is that simple? That if you want almost no risk, you can put your money in a government-insured bank account and you can get 1%, which stinks. If, however, you want more return, you cannot get more return without taking more risk. You can invest in a bond for 20 years that may pay 4%, but the risk is big inflation that will make the bond worthless in 20 years or default by the person who issued the bond, much less stocks or gold or other things. So there's no way to increase investment return without increasing risk. And when these guys get on Christian radio on Saturdays sometimes and they say, I can guarantee you 8% without any risk, he is a liar. <laughs> there's some risk somewhere. And maybe you don't have the financial wherewithal. With my financial background, sometimes people will come to me, oh, well, I've been promised this or I've been promised that, and I'll read the material, and sooner or later you find where the catch is. But the only way you can do better than you know, government-guaranteed savings account or government bond, which even then is not risk-free, but the only way you can increase return is to increase risk. And there are lots of con men involved in selling investments. And this is also one reason not to borrow money to invest. The guy who says that you can borrow money on your house and you're only paying 5% on that, and I can get you 9% or 10%, maybe he can, but he can't get better than that unless there's risk. 
if, if there was easy 10% investments out there, the bank wouldn't have lent you money for the house. They'd have gone and put their money into that instead, right? It's, it, and it's greed which makes people fall for these schemes. Another principle is to diversify your investments. That's back to, you know, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening in Ecclesiastes. Um, because nothing is safe. If you spread your risks, if real estate crashes, maybe the stocks are okay. If stocks crash, maybe your bonds are okay. If all that crashes, maybe your metals are okay or your real estate is okay. Uh, diversification is important. It means if, if real estate goes crazy up and you only have a little bit in it, you're not going to make as much. But if it crashes, you're not going to lose as much. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's not biblical, but I think Ecclesiastes kind of says the same thing. Another general principle, never invest in anything you don't understand. And uh, this one of the authors of the day one book on finances says, there's nothing in family finances which cannot be understood by anyone who can count. Don't let the mystique which surrounds the subject mislead you and do not let anyone bamboozle you with fancy terminology. The financial industry thrives on mystery in order to make unjustified profits. There are people who are intimidated by money, and so they want to turn their money over to an expert, and they're going to trust the expert, and the expert is going to say, we're going to invest in oil wells in Oklahoma, and we're going to invest in pork bellies in Chicago, and we're going to do all these things. And you think this guy's really smart. Friends, four years ago, how many investment advisors advised their people well in terms of a massive stock crash, a massive real estate crash? Almost none. And the ones who did don't need your money. They're after bigger fish. Um... But, I mean, and, and when they come up with something so complicated and you don't know how it works, but you're just, don't just trust anybody who's selling you something. Beware of get-rich-quick schemes. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. You know, if you till your food, you'll have plenty of food. Following empty pursuits, you're going to have plenty of poverty. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Um... I actually had a guy one time come into my office, another guy that was on Christian radio, this is over 15 years ago, and he said that he could get me, I think, 80% one-year return on money that would be as safe as if it was in an FDIC insured account. Why on earth did they let those guys go on the radio? Of course, I dismissed him from my office. But scams play on greed. People who are very frustrated now with 1% returns are becoming suckers for people who say... They can safely get the bigger return. And you've got people, DVD sets, secret. It used to be secrets to day trading. That's kind of falling out of favor now that those people are all bankrupt. But there are new things. And by the way, what's the big thing where everybody thinks they're going to make all the money? You have the lady in the fancy dress, and she's elegant, and she's got piles of cougarans and golden eagles and buy gold. And G. Gordon Liddy, buy gold. I'm not saying don't buy gold, but there is no magic. And there's so many people, come to our seminar, and we're going to teach you how you can buy real estate, no money down, and make all this money. All these schemes, the people who make money are the schemers. And people fall for this because of greed, pride, and envy, thinking that they can outsmart the Wizards of Wall Street and the Harvard MBAs who control the markets, and they can go to the poker table and they can win. Again, if you're not... Investing in a productive enterprise or you yourself providing skill times hard work to produce money, 
It's not a legitimate investment. It's not just being clever that's going to make you rich in terms of knowing the secret. The desire to get rich brings snares. One of the snares is bankruptcy. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You need to understand what's going on. Seek wisdom. Both spouses and major investment decisions should be agreed. Sometimes there is one who is more risk-averse, usually the wife. Men, they're often right. <laughs> and, and if there's a question, get unbiased advice. And this is another thing. This is the second really big thing in terms of financial advice I will give you. And that is, beware of financial advisors who have a conflict of interest between your investing and their income. Don't buy stuff from people who make money. At least don't take final advice from people who are selling investments. Financial advisors are salesmen, most of them. They make a commission on what they sell. And the conflict of interest is, in concrete terms, here's a mutual fund that invests in a mixture of stocks. The one he sells pays him a 6% commission when he sells it and a 1% per year as long as you hold it. There's an identical one that you can buy from Vanguard, for example. No commission, no sales fee. Which one does he want you to buy? The one that pays him the commission. Now, in a, in a world where it was going up 20% a year, 15, he didn't care. But in a world where it's going up 1%, losing 2 or 3% a year is devastating. And, and you know, be it you know, the annuity salesman, and again, I'm not saying all annuities are wrong, but... If you're giving him $100,000 or $20,000 and he's making a commission of 20% off the top or 15% off the top, of course he wants you to buy that. He has a conflict of interest. If you want financial advice, pay someone who isn't selling you anything. Pay him $1,000 to look at your situation and give you advice rather than him advising you and then you buying from him. And again... His conflict is going to be he wants to sell you what makes him the money. Sad stories I could tell you about people who bought from a friend at church. That's actually our case study if we get to it. And they trusted him. He's a friend. He's a family member. And when they get in, they realize, you know, I can't take my money out of this for 10 years. If I try to take my money out of it, I pay a 25% penalty. And I'm stuck. And he didn't tell me about these fees. He said it couldn't go down. But it's going down $100 a month because of these fees. And beware. If you don't understand it, don't do it, and be careful who you trust. Don't be rushed into a decision. If you need to decide now, decide no. Run away. The prudent sees evil and hides himself, the proverb says. So if you need financial advice, better again to pay someone who has no vested interest in the decision you make for that advice. And the experts aren't all that smart. They didn't see all this stuff coming, did they? And uh, the common sense principles are fairly basic. And beware of investing. Same reason you don't loan or borrow from friends and family. Investing with friends and family, also very dangerous. Conflicting expectations, conflicting motives. Beware. Okay, types of investments. Um, briefly, I'm, I'm just going to go through some categories some of you may want more on this. Some of the books we have talk about that. But they're broad categories. One is lending money. 
And that can be when, when you buy a government bond, you're lending money to the government and they're paying you a little bit of interest. When you, when you put money in the bank in a savings account or a CD, you're lending money to them. Corporations issue bonds. Uh, and, and again, they promise to pay you. You, give, you buy a 20-year bond from Apple Computer and they promise to pay you 4% a year for 20 years and they give you your money back. Uh, so the way you make money in, in, in bonds and in CDs by lending money to others is you get paid interest is one thing. And, and the higher, higher interest comes through one of two sources. You get more interest if you go longer term. You can get 1% if you put it in for one year. You can get 1.5% if you put it in for two years. You might be able to get 3 or 4% if you put it in five years. You might be able to get 6% if you put it in for 10 or 20 years. The other thing is risk. If you get a U.S. government bond, that's considered to be risk-free. That may be a false assumption, but that's considered that some way they'll print it or create it to give it to you. So the risk is very low. The payment is very low. Slightly more for a bank. But if let's say you're buying a bond from uh, Borders uh, bookstores. Some of you are laughing because Borders is in bankruptcy right now. And you could buy that bond. You might be able to get 25% interest on a five-year note from Borders. The reason is there's probably a 75% chance you'll never get your money because when the company goes bankrupt, they're not going to pay. So when you lend money, you have risk of default that the people, and now even there are governments that are talking about not paying back. There are governments who are being lowered in their credit rating because the credit agencies can't see how they can collect enough taxes to pay all their debt. So when you lend money, there's risk of uh, default. There's also risk of inflation. If you commit yourself to a bond for four years or ten years at 4%, and all of a sudden inflation goes up to 30% a year and interest rates are 40% a year, do you want to sell that bond? Does anybody want to buy it? No. I mean, that ten, let's say you bought a $10,000 bond for ten years at 4%, and now let's say even interest rates are 10%. You won't be able to get $5,000 for that bond anymore because inflation... Uh, makes present debt worth less. And my advice would be, because interest rates are an extraordinary, virtually zero level, you would be foolish to invest in long-term debt. Because when interest rates go up, that is going to become worth less. And if you're going to buy any kind of debt, instruments, CDs, bonds, keep it very short-term. So when interest rates rise, you can take advantage of that. Well, isn't it sinful to take interest at all? I put Deuteronomy 23 there. You're not to charge interest to your countrymen on money, food, anything may be loaned at interest. You may charge it to a foreigner, but not to your countrymen, the, the law said. I think the principle there is, is that if your brother, either a brother in Christ or brother in your family, can't make ends meet, he can't, he's $500 short on his mortgage and his family has no food, and you decide to lend him or give him $1,000, you can't be a loan shark and say, you pay me $2,000 back or I'd you know, shoot you in the knees or something, right? That if it's, if it's your brother in Christ or your brother in your family, you either give it to them or you lend it at no interest because it's an act of charity. And usury is taking advantage of someone else's desperate situation, saying, okay, well, I'll lend it to you. But you've got to give me all this stuff because you're desperate. And whatever you say, you can have my TV, my car, I just I need the money. Taking advantage of someone else in their desperate situation is sin. Investing in a business or other kind of debt may be foolish because of risk, but it's not wicked. 
Even Jesus in his parables talks about you know, using the money lenders and, and, and banks and people for a business or a home. It's not wrong to take interest in that. It's like the foreigner situation. But usury is taking advantage of someone else's desperate need. So that's um, loaning money. Now, equities or stocks is when you own a fraction of a corporation. It could be as simple as your sister wants to start a restaurant and I'm not advising this, but let's say it takes $100,000 to get started, and you put in 30, and another relative puts in 30, and your sister puts in 40, and you agree to split the profits proportionately. You essentially own stock. You own equity in that restaurant business. If the restaurant becomes a great success, then you're going to make far more money than you put into it. You've, you, but you're also taking a risk. If the restaurant, like most, fail, all your money is gone, unlike the bond where the principal is hopefully guaranteed by at least the person who lent it to you. Uh, then on the same scale, like my wife buying shares of Cracker Barrel, well, now you've got millions of shares and hundreds of delicious restaurants across the country she would like you to visit. Um, and, and you're owning some tiny fraction, you know, one over 5,000 or 50,000 of Cracker Barrel if you buy a few hundred shares. But the same idea is Cracker Barrel makes money. They pay dividends of the earnings to all the shareholders. And uh, you're, you're sharing in the growth of the company. The benefit of stocks is, as the company prospers, you can make a whole lot more money than bonds. One reason the stock market has gone way up lately is because interest rates stink in uh, bonds. You, and so that people are hoping to make more money in stocks. Also, you get like the dividends. That's helpful. The stocks may go up. But there are risks. If you own GM stock three years ago, what do you have now? Absolutely nothing. There's a new GM, but the old stock is worthless. If you own GM debt, sadly, you're worthless there as well. Um, nine out of ten investment advisors were pushing Enron shares a week before Enron collapsed, which also says something about experts. <laughs> And so if you bought Enron, it's worthless. Or the overall market can drop. You could, you know, Cracker Barrel, even Cracker Barrel dropped when the market crashed. Not as much as everything else, but some. Uh, so there's market risk. There's risk of the company. You know, you're, I remember Dow Chemical, when some, in Bhopal, India, some plant blew up and killed a bunch of people. What do you think happened to the shares of Dow Chemical? Boom! Uh, it goes down. But again, different kinds of stocks, small company, large company, international, all kinds of varieties you can learn about. Uh, over time, stocks have done better. We live in strange times now. I'm not making any predictions. But over time, statistically, you'll make more money investing broadly in stocks than you will in bonds if you look back. Not a profit for the future. None of it looks real good to me right now. Third option, big thing, precious metals and gold, silver. Uh, there are benefits to that, right? Uh, it can be a hedge against inflation. One reason people are buying so much gold and silver, silver's doubled in the last year. Gold is, I remember when we got back from Saudi Arabia, it was in the 200s. Now it's 1,400 and something an ounce. It's a hedge against inflation. If the government keeps printing and making more money, then gold is something tangible that has value, and so it goes up in value. It also, though, goes up as people are, are speculating. Uh, some people have a doomsday scenario. Look, you know, remember the Weimar Republic in the 30s, 20s and 30s in Germany where they inflated their money so much, or Zimbabwe where, you know, wages are increasing every hour for inflation and you're bringing in wheelbarrows full of worthless banknotes to try to get some bread. Um, you know, and if, if our country totally runs off the rails economically, then 
gold, other hard assets. I mean, you, you could buy copper, but you'd need to like fill your whole backyard with copper. You know, people are stealing copper too. But, uh, you know, gold, silver, more compact. And if, if the world melts down, you've got something of value. But there is risk. It's interesting in the Bible, so often when it talks about gold and silver and, and wealth, there's a warning It says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Uh, If you buy gold, in 1933, FDR made private ownership of gold for investment illegal. And people were required to turn in their gold, gold coins. They could keep a little bit for coin collectors and jewelry. But they were ordered to turn it in and sell it at a government price, I think, of $28 an ounce. And it became illegal to own gold as an investment. That could happen again. Right now, it doesn't seem like it will. Some of us might face a moral dilemma if they did that as to whether we would obey that law. Another subject, another time. Uh, another problem is theft. Okay, you got the gold. Uh, you put it in the bank. Well, the bank could get robbed in the safe deposit. Or the government could confiscate all the gold out of the safe deposit boxes. Uh, you, you put it at home. Somebody come into your house, put a gun to your head. Where's the gold? You give them the gold. It's all gone. Thieves can take it away. Or maybe someday in Antarctica, they're going to find tons and tons of gold. <laughs> and all of a sudden, gold is as plentiful as air and water, and everybody's got it, and your gold will crash. Or there just can be a market crash. Uh, or the doomsday scenario comes, and you've got some gold and silver, and the gang comes up to your door with the guns, they give me your gold and silver, and it's all gone in a minute anyway. Or your neighbors find out you have it, and... Uh, gold doesn't give you an interest rate or a return. It's not secure. Now, the conventional wisdom, which I think is reasonable, is to take of your savings 5 to 10% for the various uh, disaster scenarios, inflation scenarios. I'm not sure you should put 100% in. Now, you'd think I was very wise if I said five years ago put 100% in, sell your stocks and buy gold. I think it would be wise to have some things like that along with everything else. Other investments, real estate, annuities, foreign currency, foreign stocks, trading, future, all kinds of things you can do. Um, mutual funds can be wise. So instead of buying one stock like Cracker Barrel or GM or Ford, it's buying a whole bunch of stocks. You're spreading the risk or bonds as well. Now, there are tax-advantaged accounts the government's created, 401Ks, 403Bs, IRAs, that allow you to accumulate money, tax-free, and then if most of them you pay tax. A Roth IRA, you pay tax now, not later. Uh, investment advisors can help you with those things. Um, if your company offers to match your 401k contribution, take it. Why? It's 100% return on investment. You can't get that right now. If they say, well, you put 4% in, we'll match the 4%, so you put in $300 a month, and we'll put in $300 a month, grab that. It's an incredible opportunity, 100% return on investment. Um, If you're going to be moving around, somebody asked me, what happens, let's say a widow has gotten an insurance settlement, now she's got hundreds of thousands of dollars. Again, conventional wisdom is to move in and out of things slowly. Don't say, okay, great, we'll buy $400,000 for the stock. The conventional wisdom is, uh, like on a monthly basis, gradually get in, gradually get out, rebalance, and, and in each situation, I have time, at the end I have kind of different financial phases of life. Everyone's situation is different. This is where counsel can help you in terms of if you're young, you, you're, you can take more risk in your retirement investment. You're saving different purposes for 
uh, a home or something like that or your children's education. And different people are going to have different mixes between how risky it can be, how much is kept safe in cash and, and other things. Um, there's a lot of good material, in, including in some of those books, about that. Uh, don't depend upon Social Security and Medicare. May help, may not. Defined benefit retirement plans are becoming more and more rare. Right now, people in the public sector have these plans where you can retire at a certain age and they promise you so much per month for life. Uh, those have been phased out, by and large, in the private sector. And I predict in the next several years, they're going to be phased out of the public sector for new employees because we just can't afford to pay them. Um, wise saving and investing is a good thing because it will enable you to do more for the Lord. Um, it's a benefit if you can get to a point where you no longer have to be paid to work. You can volunteer. You can give. Um, but your ultimate security is in the Lord. Uh, right now, it's very frustrating, okay? I mean, most of us are frustrated. I'm frustrated in this area in terms of savings because there just seems to be no clear-cut answer. It is a mess. Uh, the government has made it very risky and unprofitable to invest in almost anything. Um, but I'm thankful that my treasure is not here. One day it's all going to be burned up anyway in this world. And I have a treasure and inheritance in heaven which can never be taken away. And so you want to act as prudently as you can, diversifying, uh, spreading risk, recognizing risk. Um, but that's not where your hope is. And if it all does get inflated or stolen away or whatever else, aren't you glad that God is the one who feeds you, not the government and not even you yourself? So that's where your ultimate trust is must be. And again, general principle, need it soon, keep it very safe, need it longer, you can have some more risk. It's all risky right now. Uh, the last uh, couple things more quickly, uh, planning for the future, make a will. 70% of Americans die intestate without a will. Dave Ramsey says a will is a gift to your loved ones. Why do you need one? Who's going to finish raising your kids if you and your wife both die? Uh, how will the assets the Lord has given you be distributed if your whole family dies? Uh, do you want it to go to the family members? Do you want it to go to ministry? Um, or do you want some judge to decide? I don't want some judge to decide. It is appropriate to leave an inheritance to your family. A, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, it says. Uh, your children can be helped. Uh, the best in inheritance you can give them financially is wisdom. Uh, to teach them these very things. To train them how to deal with money. There's also a warning that an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Some people inherit money and they're utterly foolish with it. And so you want to prepare your family. Uh, people were talking during the break even about in child training. I remember when our kids were younger... Uh, we would give them a budget, like for clothing, of you know, let's say twenty dollars a month, and they could save up and get the thing they wanted. And uh, my son wanted the cool Air Jordans, is when Jordan was still playing basketball or something. And you know, he, whatever you save up, and then you get it. But then what happens? But he goes in the mud, and they crack and fall apart after a month or so, and he has no money. And what do you do? Do you say, well, here's fifty more dollars, go buy some Keds or something? And we decided, you know, son, uh, I've got some old jogging shoes. They've probably been hundreds of miles. They stink enough you can hear them coming around the corner. But you can wear these even though they're three sizes too big until you save your money for the next pair of shoes. 
Or you can go to a thrift store once you've saved enough money to do that. Or go to you know, Ross or someplace and get their cheap... But to learn the lessons of, of saving. And, and there's not going to always be somebody there to bail you out. And, and budgeting and living within your means. And many parents share a lot of guilt for how they have trained their kids to be unwise, lazy... Uh, dependent upon others inappropriately, instant gratification, uh, even to have them participate in a family budget or have them budget a family event, like have them make a budget for a family vacation and then keep track and, and learn those skills at an early age. Do you treat all your kids equally in your will? Not necessarily. If you have one, again, the lady I knew passed away and she had a son who was a meth addict whom I tried to counsel over many years. What happens if you give $50,000 to a meth addict? It's gone in less than a year, and he's worse than he's ever been. He's hearing you know, enough meth, and you can really fry your brain. Uh, so some are not wise enough to receive that, or they need someone to hold it in trust for them until they're ready to use it wisely. It may be you have a child who is a multimillionaire investment banker in New York and $50,000 from you isn't even going to change their life, but you've got another son who's a missionary in Latin America and that might keep them in the field another three years if you could. So there's wisdom to be used there. You may want to include your church in your will as well. Um, and then also a will just provides direction to those who will settle your affairs. Uh, we had a dear lady in our church who died at 99 years, six months. And she had the instructions written out for burial, for the memorial service. Here's what I was supposed to do. Some of the guy was supposed to sing. That was a good choice. Him sing, me preach. Um, and had it all laid out. And it made it so easy for us to know we were following her wishes. We don't all live to 99. It, it can really help your family. Another thing a friend of mine recommended, I think is a really good idea, is creating what he called a legacy drawer. Uh, I'm going to Nigeria on uh, Tuesday. I'm fully expecting to come back. Statistically, the likelihood of my not coming back is small. But it did make me think, I'm going to write down where things are, wills, investments, key documents, passwords, combinations, and give it to my wife so that in the unlikely event something did happen, her grief would not be confounded with utter confusion about how to manage our affairs. And so it's something very wise to do for your kids or your spouse, if you're the one who manages the money, is to put things together someplace safe where if the worst happened, they would at least know what to do and how to manage things. Some people have even written letters to their family members and other sweet things like that. I didn't do that with mine. I just said, here's where it is. Um, I won't say more than that. Um, investment exercise. There are forms there just calculating your net worth, evaluating insurance risks. You can go on some of these websites and calculate what do you need to retire. It's kind of daunting, but it's a reality. Uh, I already talked about creating a legacy file. And then we have another case study. I'm going to go through this one fairly briefly, but it's, it's illustrative of a lot of these principles I've been talking about. I've entitled it, The Naive Believes Anything, But the Prudent Man Considers His Steps. Um, the names and some of the details have been changed to protect both the innocent and the guilty. Here's two guys, Pete and John, members of the same church. They're seeking mediation. 
Uh, Pete is an investment advisor. His main product is he sells an annuity, which goes up and down, well, goes up with the stock market, sharing part of the return. He says it can't go down. And Pete was making money when the stock, when the housing market was strong, is that he would talk to people, family, friends, network, internet, and people who had bought their houses when it was really cheap, $100,000, $150,000, now it's worth a half a million. He would convince them to take a couple hundred thousand dollars out of the house. They could borrow the money at about 5% interest. And he would say, I'm sure I can get you 8 or 9 or 10% interest. You'll be much better off. Win-win. Um, now, John, who goes to his church, had a family member pass away. He's never had money before. He inherits a half a million dollars. And he didn't know what to do. He, like many of us, is just terrified by the responsibility of that money. And he knew that Pete is an expert. And Pete is in his church, and they're in a men's Bible study together. And so he wanted Pete's advice. And and Pete has John take half of his money and buy one of those variable annuities, uh, which is supposed to share half the increase of the stock market. And if the stock market goes down, it won't drop. And then also to lend $200,000 to his firm. Pete, Pete wanted some more working capital. He had, he was, his firm was highly leveraged. They were borrowing a lot of money from the bank to keep things going and their advertising and their office. And so he said, look, I'm paying the bank 15%. I'll pay you 9% or whatever the figure, I guess 11%. I was paying, and, and I'll pay you 11%, much better than the bank will do. And John says, sure, I trust you. And so they wrote a little note and it was supposed to be a win-win deal. Guess what happened? Housing market crashed. Uh, Pete isn't selling many uh, annuity products. And when the year is up, Pete says, I can't pay you the $200,000. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. I need you to extend me another year. I'll sign another note, another 11% per year. And also, John, when he looked at this annuity, which was supposed to never go down, every month there were fees being deducted, which were in the contract. And then he wanted his money back. He called the company and says, well, look, it says on here I've still got 240000 left. Can I have it? And they say, no, we can only give you one hundred and eighty dollars right now. If you wait 10 years, we can give you the balance, less the fees we've charged. And he said, why didn't you tell me about this? So they meet together. Um, Pete thinks he's a victim. Everything was fine until the stock market crashed and the housing market crashed. It's not my fault. And uh, the counselor sought to convince Pete that there were several ways in which he had sinned. One was in not adequately explaining to John the risks of these investments. Remember what I said earlier? Risk, you know, increased return always means increased risk. There was risk there. And one problem with a lot of investment salesmen is that they always tell you the bright side. They always tell you the best case scenario. They actually have folders and even books they'll give you. And it looks like a book, but they don't sell this book at Barnes & Noble. It's a book produced for investment salesmen that pretends to be an objective analysis, which really leads you to the one conclusion of buying his product. But, you know, for him, he's always looking at the bright side. It's going to be fine. And he should have explained to John the nature of these risks. And one thing being, if the bank in that environment wanted 11% to lend Pete the money, it meant the bank had identified risk. And those risks needed to be explained to John. And also the fact that the business was highly leveraged meant that a few bad months in the business would be under. 
Uh, and I think, I think the fact that John was so naive in money matters made it worse, didn't it? That he just trusted him and uh, his expert advice. And Pete was really looking out for his own interest. Philippians says, look for the interests of others ahead of your own. But John's interests were not considered first. Now, John also, I think, has been... He said some really horrible, angry things to Pete, which he needs to repent of. Hateful, murderous words. He also needs to deal with his own greed, that it seems like even common sense would tell you if the bank is offering you 3% and this guy's offering you 11%, uh, there's probably a reason. Um, Anyway, so outcome... Uh, both sought forgiveness to some level. It was very hard to convince Pete that he was really at fault in some of these things. So they ultimately ended up producing a new agreement. Um, But issues continue in terms of Pete coming to grips with the nature of how he does his business. Quite frankly, if, if Pete were in my church doing that, I would want to talk to him about the morality of, of some of those practices of his, that he should, have, he should make the risks, penalties, and costs much more clear. And uh, my opinion would be, I question whether that's something someone should be dealing with anyway. So, um, to, to summarize that very sad, a lot of, that's actually going through the case we've already done. Finally, you know, the Scripture would tell us that your goal in life is not to be rich. We've been talking about money now for seven hours. I congratulate you for staying here and staying awake. But instruction is better than silver, knowledge better than choicest gold, wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. And my understanding in Proverbs is wisdom is ultimately pointing us to Christ. It's Christ who is the pearl of great cost. Material things will never satisfy your soul. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This all is vanity. As a man has come naked from his mother's womb, he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor his hand can carry. Uh, Different things. People said there are no pockets and shrouds. (laughs) You know, and say, how much did he leave when he died? He left all of it. Or you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Um, it's all going to be burned up, as, as Peter says in Second Peter. And so we need to learn to find our satisfaction in the Lord to seek first His kingdom. Trust Him to meet our needs. But then to be content, free from the love of money, and trusting Him whatever He gives us. As Paul says, to be content with much or with little realizing that both prosperity and poverty both bring temptations, and then also to be rich towards God. Uh, You will not take it with you. And then the the last point I want to make before I go through some of the questions, there's a great irony in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, in that what did I say was about the most foolish thing you could possibly do in financial matters? Cosign somebody else's debt. Be surety for somebody else's debt. What did Jesus do for us? He co-signed for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. That we owed a debt we could not pay. The 10,000 talent debt of that parable. The infinite debt of our sin and of our guilt. And Jesus, who was 
at the right hand of the Father in glory, willingly took upon Himself our debt. He said, I will pay their debt. And He went from riches to poverty. He descended to earth to be made a man, as a man to be a servant, to be stricken by God for our guilt, to pay the debt we could never pay ourselves. It's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And whatever your financial situation is today, if you're in Christ, you are blessed. You are debt-free of the debts that matter. The debt of your sin has been paid by someone who co-signed for you before the foundation of the world and made the payment 2,000 years ago. But you're not just debt-free. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 8? You're rich. You know, for some of you, you just love to be debt-free, right? Get rid of my house payment. Get rid of my credit card payment. But in this case, the debt of your sin hasn't just been paid. We have been enriched. Not only has our guilt been imputed. That's a credit card term. Our, our debt was imputed to Christ. But what was the other imputation? His righteousness has been credited to us. That we have a righteousness not of our own that comes from keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God through faith in Christ. And we are rich with the riches that really matter. Not riches we've earned, but riches given us as a gift that we possess by God's grace the perfect righteousness of Christ who kept the law for us. And these are riches which can never be taken away. It won't be confiscated by the government. It can't be inflated away by bad monetary policy. Tsunamis, earthquakes, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And if you have that perspective, you can be content and thankful. Every one of us walks away who's a believer rich, forgiven, debt-free, and blessed. Amen.